Before we open the word, I'd like us to remember in prayer uh, the friends of Doug and Cherry Brown, their two grandchildren, uh, the Hawkins children, and then also our um, Steve Worth went to be home, went home to be with the Lord last Thursday. I think they were actually in England at the time. For many years, they were in Pinnacook, Scotland. Uh, but like us to remember uh, Janice, and then their children were Stephen Jr. and Paul and Sarah and their families. Also, uh, before we pray, just a word. Uh, men and women serving up in the AV team. I'm looking at Ray, I think, is our AV boss with the deacons. Thank you so much for your work. And we know it's frustrating. Technology is great when it works and not so good when it doesn't. But we appreciate you guys and those of you who are serving. And thank you so much. So let's go to the Lord in prayer if we can. Father, we need your grace. We sing that song, Oh, I Need Thee, every hour. We, your people, your gathered people, need you. And tonight we pray that in the word there might be comfort, there might be instruction, there might be conviction, there might even be conversion and regeneration. We pray, oh God, for your spirit's help to apply this word to our hearts, for you, Lord, to take the soil of our hearts and dig it up and press the seed in. We pray that you would help us repent where we need to repent, believe where we need to express faith. Show us all the brightness, all the texture, all the goodness of your promises to us that are yea and amen in Christ. We ask, too, that you might help these two uh, grandchildren of, the, of Doug and Sherry's friends as they, they recover from their accident. Thank you for sparing their lives. We pray that you might help them to have a full recovery. And Father, we pray that the very comfort, your very comfort, the comfort of God, as Paul wrote of in 2 Corinthians 1, would be Janice's and Stephen's and Paul's and Sarah's and their families now. Thank you for Steve. We speak back to you your word that precious in your sight is the death of your saints. And so we thank you for our brother's life that he loved you to death. And we ask now for great comfort for their family and for help for us as we hear your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen, amen. We'll turn, if you will, to page 60. If you have a pew Bible, page 60. There, Exodus 18, our focus will be verses 13 through 27. You might say this is part two of the sermon I began last week. And I'd like to read this for us again. I know we heard it last week, but yet again tonight. This is the idea of hearing all the good, helping them for good. Those first 12 verses are focuses hearing 
all the good, and then the next uh, 14 verses or 15 verses is helping them for good. The next day, verse 13, the next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. That's an important phrase. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God, when they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, and he basically did the thumbs down, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. This is God's word, and it is good. The Africans have a proverb that goes something like this. If you want to go faster, go alone. If you want to go further, go with others. Some of you know this temptation very much to always just want to do everything by yourself. It's understandable. And you try to help someone do something or they get started and you just can't stand it. You say, just move aside and let me do it. Who understands what I'm talking about? Can anyone relate to that? Yeah. And parents, especially dads with children, our impatience is probably never more exposed than when we are delegating and trying to help our children by giving them the chance to do things. 
And that's, you know, this passage clearly is instructive about that. Let me introduce it this way, though. You know, sometimes you don't want to be that person. You don't want to be the person who screws up their courage and says the hard stuff, who says what needs to be said in the moment to state the obvious, the need of the hour. Your desire for ease rules you. It's just easier not to say anything. Your disdain of conflict paralyzes you. They may not like me. If I bring this up, we're going to argue. I know how this is going to go. And your fear of people, which Proverbs says in Proverbs 29, 25, is a snare, has you playing it safe. But if you and I will help others for good, if we will help others for their good, you will need to speak. I will need to speak. You will need to speak up. Not this, uh, but clearly, truthfully, faithfully, and with a love and interest for the good of the other. In a sense, you will need to forget yourself. You'll need to exercise in that moment a little holy self-forgetfulness and speak to the other. To only remember the other Forget yourself, and as Paul says in the book of Ephesians, speak the truth and the love. This is to apply the gospel. This is part of genuinely helping others for their good. And we've talked about this often, about what is the very essence of love. Love, and I'm borrowing from a definition some 40, 45 years of age, love is that seeking of the highest good of the other that sometimes produces the warmest feelings of affection for them. Not always. You may love another person because love is essentially verbal, is a biblical concept, right? More More than it is a noun. It is active. It is seeking the good of the other. It's covenantal. It's not saying, well, if you love me, I'll love you. It's I'm gonna do you good, no matter. And that doesn't mean that love always agrees to be trampled upon. So last week, as we think about this idea of speaking, doing others good, speaking to them, last week we made the case to think of Exodus 18 in two parts. First, verses 1 through 12, hearing all the good now tonight. 13 through 27, helping them for good. All right? What does the background look like for the good we witness in this passage? Before Jethro is truly able to help his son-in-law for good, and thus the whole of the nation of Israel, something must take place first within him. This is the idea of the vertical before the horizontal. And it's very helpful if we begin to recognize as Moses many years later, recounts this history, this narrative. It is, in fact, a biography of himself. It's a what? An autobiography. And so you can see sometimes how he paints paints himself in a negative light and even others in a more positive light. But here the idea is 
that Jethro, something must take place vertical before he can do good horizontally. It's why we'll see in the coming weeks the two tablets of the law, the first commandments, have to do with our relationship with God, where those final six, the second tablet, are horizontal. It's one another. Vertical first, the duty that God requires of us with respect to him particularly, and then to one another in the final six. Jethro, the priest of Midian and Moses' father-in-law, he had heard all the good, secondhand we might say, that Yahweh had done for Moses and the people of Israel. He heard it secondhand, and then he heard it from the lips of a personal and expert and front row eyewitness, Moses, his very own son-in-law. He had heard all the good that the Lord had done for God's people. And then when he heard, even his brother Brian was describing himself as innately curious, maybe it was curiosity that drove Jethro every mile from Midian to meet up there at the mountain with his son-in-law, Moses. He'd heard all this good, and when he heard, he brought his daughter, Moses' wife, Zipporah, her two children, Gershom and Eliezer. Moses' sons, Jethro's grandsons to Moses. And the very names of Moses' sons described his experience. It memorialized that second set of 40 years for him. Gershom meant sojourner in a foreign land, right? Just for a moment, a little bit of history. Moses' first 40 years in Egypt, then 40 years tending his father-in-law's flocks, and then that third set of 40 years leading the people of Israel in the wilderness. But there, Gershom, sojourner in a foreign land, and Eliezer meant my God is my help, or my father's God is my help. And Moses could confess that for 40 years in Midian, he was the sojourner in a foreign land who had received incredible help from his God, the one who had revealed himself to him by the burning bush, in the midst of the burning bush, and through this new, unique, and exclusive covenant name of Yahweh. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. Now, I want us to think of these two words, common grace, for a moment. As we're leading up here to this section called helping them for good. You might remember that Jethro blessed the Lord out loud. We saw this last week in verses 10 and 11. He brought this burnt offering and sacrifices to God. He joined Moses and Aaron and all the elders of Israel in this celebratory meal of gratitude. And to be clear, we do not know if Jethro was converted, but I think we can make the case that he acted like a converted man, like a man who got it right by God's grace vertically, and then like a person whose entire orientation was for the good of the other. We noted this last week, that in every case, Moses always cast Jethro virtually every time in a positive light, all right? Like a man who experienced the common grace of God. 
His common grace, or rather God's common grace, was evident from the moment he's introduced to us in Exodus 2. After Moses is finally arrived fleeing for his life from Egypt to Midian and by the well with Jethro's seven daughters. It is Jethro who's the hospitable father of seven daughters, wanting his daughters to exercise their own radical hospitality to Moses. It's like he's like, girls, where's your manners? Why did you not invite this young man to dinner? He's the supportive father-in-law who only says, go in peace when Moses requests leave to return to his people back in Egypt and see how they're doing. He's the helpful father and grandfather who takes care of Zipporah and the boys as they are left in his care by Moses. And that was during Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh in those early days of the Exodus as the Lord is bringing Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of the house and bondage of slavery. Part of how Moses conveys the common grace of God given to Jethro, is that Moses always describes Jethro in relational terms. He's the father of Zipporah. He's the grandfather of Gershom and Eliezer. And he is, as we keep reading repeatedly, Moses' father-in-law. That's important. We'll understand that more in a few moments. Common grace. Now let's think about quickly reviewing the idea of hearing all the good. But now something here is different with Jethro. He was confronted with the word about Yahweh and the works of Yahweh. And he didn't sit still. This old man could not simply remain on his porch, rocking back and forth. And so he brings Moses' family. He brings Zipporah and the boys. And you can only imagine their reunion. A few words of small talk. And then into the tent where Moses tells all. You got to think about this. In a matter of just a couple of months, probably two million Israelites, after 430 years, are magically redeemed through these 10 plagues and then through the Red Sea. God makes them free. We keep hearing this term. They've been brought out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so they meet They go right into the tent. And Moses recounts for Jethro and Zippor and the boys all the good that Yahweh had done for him and for Israel. You can only imagine how the four weary travelers were hanging on every word. Imagine even this morning how, I don't know if you're like me, I'm listening to Brian and Brenda tell their, their testimony of God rescuing them. Just two people. And just every word, I'm hanging on every word, then thinking about what would it have been like in the tent with Moses, and maybe you were like six-year-old Gershom and four-year-old Eliezer, and you're, whatever their ages were, you're just hanging on every word. And you're like, tell us more. Really, did that happen? Come on, Dad, tell us more. And it appears that Jethro transformed. and was transformed from this hospitable Middle Easterner to a man amazed and thrilled by the renown and reputation of Yahweh, of Moses God, and how he had rescued his people Israel. Jethro heard all that was good. Jethro believed all that was good. Jethro blessed him who above all else is pure goodness. 
and as evidence of a man whose heart was gripped by the grace and goodness of Jehovah, Jethro worships and offers sacrifices to him who does all good. And finally and most intimately, there's this connection as Jethro eats, he fellowships with the elders of Israel, an expression of acceptance of those who were the very objects of God's all good, distinguishing love. And you get this. I know if you don't like me, you're not going to sit down and eat a meal with me in my house. There's something personal here. There's something that's communicated by Jethro the man sitting down there, joined by Aaron, not just Moses, joined by Aaron and all the elders of Israel. Jethro's hearing all the good now will turn into helping them for good before our very eyes. And so it comes to this idea, good and timely word. I want you to see how the narrative turns. Jethro hears all the good, and Moses confirms and supplements that report with his own personal eyewitness front row account. That's the essence of verses 1 through 12. But in verses 13 through 27, it's Jethro now who speaks and Moses who listens. It's Jethro who blesses and helps by his speaking the truth in love. It was Solomon who wrote this. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver, Proverbs 25, 11. And so I want us to focus on these remaining 15 verses of our chapter. And I want to give you a little bit of math in a way to think about what we're going to see. When you see the counsel that Jethro offers in verses 17 through 23, there's a sense in which we want to understand that that counsel is a template, that giving of counsel is a template for us with life in the body. And let me give it this way. Those words may have only taken a minute to express. But you could say it took one minute and 40 years, or 40 years in a minute. Because behind that one minute of counsel in the moment was 40 years of faithful relationship. And so here's our outline as we look at these concluding 15 verses. First, in verses 13 through 14, very simply, a wise man observes. A wise man observes. Secondly, in verses 15 and 16, we see Moses explains. Thirdly, in verses 17 through 23, a wise man offers counsel. You'll notice that first, a wise man observes, and then second, a wise man offers counsel. And then finally, in verses 24 through 27, we have the fruit of counsel received. First, a wise man observes as we work our way through these verses. Jethro observes. He watches and listens. It's as though he knows James' counsel before James wrote his epistle. Be what? Quick to listen and slow to speak. Of course, his eyes, he's observing his son-in-law. And Moses is at work now, sitting, you can imagine this, while a multitude of Israelites 
stand around him. I remember in January we were arriving in Nairobi in the airport. And it was very late at night. And there were maybe 150, 200 passengers getting off this plane. And there was one person. And she was checking she was checking our passport and visa and looking at our, uh, not just our negative COVID test, but the online form with the country of Kenya we filled that we were an incoming passenger. So I was like there at the back and I'm watching this one person and all of us exhausted carrying our stuff and she's checking passport, visa, you know, um, negative COVID test and all this. I think this scene here is something very similar. Moses is sitting and all these Israelites are standing around him. He's sitting, they're standing, as in all day, as in virtually all day. Don't miss that phrase from morning till evening at the end of verse 13. He'll use that, what he observes, he'll use that in his question at the end of verse 14. And the idea here is of a judicial system with one employee, Moses the judge. Now, if you know this, in the Greenville-Spartanburg-Anderson area, there's probably 1.5 million people. At this point, in Israel's history, there's 2 million people, men, women, and children. So could you imagine going down to the Greenville County Courthouse, and there's this huge line coming out of the courthouse, uh, going towards Main Street and then stretching out North Main, South Main, just thousands of people in line. And, and you say, hey, what's going on? I mean, this, and, and you see the sign. This is the mediation line for all Greenville County, Spartanburg County, Anderson County um, citizens. And you come up to a guy at the door and you say, what's going on? And he's saying, we're trying to give a visual representation of what happened in Exodus 18. That's literally what's taking place. It's a judicial system with one employee, Moses the judge. And Jethro just, just cannot remain silent. I think you might say in this moment, he's a fixer. He doesn't just want, he's not like, Moses, tell me all your sorrows and I'll just listen. He's like, nah, he can't sit on his hands. He wants to fix his situation. He asks just all of two questions. What are you actually doing for the people, number one? Like, what is it that you're doing, Moses? <laughs> and obviously, just by the question, the implication is, like, you have a big S on your chest right now, all right? And that doesn't mean smart, all right? And then the second is, why in the world are you doing all this by yourself? And I think it's important to remember that many years later, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses is essentially writing his own autobiography. And he's not even showing or describing himself here in a favorable light. That makes sense later when you read that he was like the most humble person on the earth, something to that effect. And by repeating this phrase, morning till evening, the implication is that it was unbearably, unsustainably a poor practice. We speak of best practices. This is what we call worst practices, okay? A couple of years ago, I was, um, I was out on a preserve, and we were shooting birds with dogs, and I had a buddy next to me, and the rule was that when a bird jumped up, he was, any bird that was straight and to the right 
he was to shoot at. But only birds that were straight and to the left, I was going to shoot at. So, um, but the guide was also right here. And I knew that he was here. So anyway, this, this was early on in the hunt. And the bird jumped up, a bird jumped up and went this way on the other side, like flying over the head of the guide. And I picked up my shotgun and the guide was right here. And I probably shot within eight or 10 inches of the guide's head. He jumped back and he looked at me and he said, just four words, did you just shoot? And I looked down at the ground in complete just shame and embarrassment. Yeah, like that was me, the guy right next to you. Okay. Stupid. Yeah, right, stupid. And, the impl- and I'm not saying that, that Jethro is thinking this of his son-in-law. But he's loving him enough here to tell him the truth as he comes to his question, all right? His question's right there. The the question's there in verses 14. He's not meaning to berate or embarrass his son-in-law, but it's to call him to account. It's really love. We'll see Moses' explanation now in verses 15 and 16. Moses is sincere about his work. It's really evident by his answer, but he's sincerely inefficient. His workload is unsustainable. He sees himself as an advocate for them before the Lord, right? He says, the people come to me to inquire of God. And I think you can see some parallels between Moses here and probably like the way Martha felt at the end of Luke 10. There's Mary, just sitting at the feet of the Lord Jesus, hanging on every word. And Martha is scurrying about. We would say she was multitasking or task switching. You can just imagine her scurrying around trying to make sure that everyone had what they needed. And this is a case here where Moses is genuine, is sincere about his work, but he's, he's inefficient. And he needs someone to speak to him. All right, think about his interests. The people come to me to inquire of God. Check. He saw himself as a mediator between them to settle their disputes. Check. He understood that someone was needed to adjudicate matters of conflict between fellow Israelites. Check. All right, he said, I decide between one person and another. And he's committed, he ought to be committed for his willingness to do just that. And he even affirmed his role to make them know, that is the children of Israel, the statutes of God and his laws. Moses was a man here. He stood up, he was responsible. He answered the call. You think about this. He provided representation for them before God. He provided them mediation between one another, and he provided instruction of God's truth. He did that, okay? As we look at 15 and 16, he's very plain about that. But I want you to see now how a wise man offers counsel. Jethro is plain spoken. And we might say he was honest, forthright, or even blunt. I mean, 
I think some of us would say this was blunt. When Jethro simply looks at Moses and says, what you're doing is not good. That's it. Only seven words. But as we saw earlier, it's backed up with 40 plus years of relationship. Jethro had earned the right with Moses to speak plainly and honestly. Now, I want to just pause here and apply this just for a moment. Are you within the body of Christ building the type of relationships in the body with others, even cross-generationally, where you are making yourself open to be spoken to, that you're approachable? And further, are you in the way you love and the way you build relationship, are you earning street cred Are you earning what Jethro earned with Moses, which was 40 years of relationship, where then you can step up, look someone in the eye, and say, I love you, but I need to tell you this. And I don't want to hurt you, but I think out of love, I need to tell you this. Are you doing that? Or does nobody know you? Really? Like, be honest. Do you think, is there anyone in this building tonight that if you needed them to come up to you for the love of your soul would speak the truth to you? To say exactly what Jethro said to Moses, what you're doing is not right. And I want to call you to that level of life in the body. Be known. Know others and be known. Know others and be known. Do that with humility. Practice reasonable, healthy self-disclosure, even the confession of your own sin. Let's do that. Let's do that. Let me paraphrase what Jethro is saying to Moses. He says, you're going to kill yourself with exhaustion. And you'll kill your inner circle as well. You'll take everyone around you down. It's really more than you can bear. You are a creature. You and I are creatures, and we have creaturely limits. You must increase the workload of others. You must delegate. You must delegate both the responsibility and the authority for the work of resolving disputes, of adjudicating legal matters, and settling differences between the people. You know, sometimes you and I can read about how the court system is backed up. Believe me, the court system here, it was backed up, okay? And Jethro does not wait for Moses to ask for advice. And some of you know, I love this axiom, is if your advice is desired, it will be requested. But within the body of Christ, We ought to be earning that type of relational equity. We ought to be aiming for that where ideally over time, instead of shrinking as you see someone coming towards you and you're like, they're about to give me my weekly rebuke. (laughs) You're thinking to yourself, oh, that person, they love me so much. They're about to tell me the truth that only they can give to me at this moment. Okay, that type of thing. 
I'm kind of waiting right after this sermon that there, there'll be a line. You guys will be coming. It's all right. It's okay. If it happens, it happens. All right. But Jethro doesn't wait for Moses to give it. Jethro believed he had earned the right to give advice, and he does. And he gives it in the form of a command. He doesn't mince words. Now obey my voice. <laughs> Love it. I will give you advice, and God be with you. And I want you to see four aspects of Jethro's counsel here. Number one, he clarifies Moses' prime role and responsibilities. You can see that there in verse 19. Look at this. He says, you shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what, and what they must do. And you see in Moses, even the offices of our Lord Jesus Christ as our great prophet, our great priest and king, of whom the writer in the book of Hebrews says, actually, Jesus is greater. Though Moses was faithful in all God's house, Jesus was greater. He was all that and perfect. And Jethro combined here two aspects of teaching. I want you to see, actually, first the priestly, he says, you shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. That's that idea of advocacy. And then look here in terms of teaching. There's admonition. You shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. He puts these two together for this one outcome, and that is so that they will know how they must walk and what they must do. In fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul does this in Colossians 1.28. He says, proclaiming, him we proclaim, admonishing or warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. So four aspects of Jethro's counsel. First, Moses' prime role, to advocate and to teach so that they may know how to live. Second, the character qualifications for the lesser judges. And basically, he gives four here, four character qualifications. And I know we've even thought about this recently as a church as we've recommended men for the offices of deacon and elder. They are to be able men, that is, capable men. Not men who simply wear a badge of judge, but actually decide matters actually adjudicate, actually resolve disputes. And they're to be selected broadly from all the people of Israel. Do you notice that phrase there, he says? He says, you shall look for able men from all the people, broadly, broadly from all the people of Israel. Secondly, there will be men who are reverent. They're to fear God. Men who fear God, the very description of a godly man in all the wisdom literature of Job, Psalms, and Proverbs. Even as we think of uh, Job described as a God-fearing man or, or Solomon writing that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Not only are they to be capable, not only reverent, they are to be trustworthy. They're to be faithful men, reliable, men that... When they say they'll be there at 2 o'clock on Friday at 
such and such an intersection. They're there. Their word matters. They follow through. They can be counted upon. And then fourthly, what makes great sense, because they were judges, they must be men who hate a bribe. Godly, upright men, not covetous men or lovers of money, who care more to get a matter right than to have their palms greased by a bribe and be unduly influenced. There's another aspect of Jethro's counsel. They were to create a delegation strategy. I want you to remember that the Israelite men were above 600,000, the whole multitude, perhaps 2 million, and it's a lot of people. Here's a good assignment if you're more than, if you're in the third grade and above. Figure out, based on 600,000, how many men it would take to delegate in thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. I'll give you a hint. It's more than 70,000 lesser judges. It was a huge job to obey this very point, to find 70,000 men to take those 600,000 and then give representation at the level of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and ten. It's a lot of people. And here was Jethro's counsel, divide the population so there are heads over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. You do the math, so if you're above third grade, you can do it and come back. I've got it written down. I know the number, all right? You can see me, all right? And then there's a promised outcome in verse 23. He says, if you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. Now, there's a warning here, and I want to point it out. Them. Look at verse 22 for a moment. It's easy to skip this. Right? Because the idea here is Moses would be like the Supreme Court. He'd get the big cases. And then all these lesser, if you will, circuit or magistrate judges at their bench would decide the lesser cases. But look of the warning. It's very subtle that Jethro gives to Moses. Here it is. And let them judge the people at all times. Delegate responsibility And with that responsibility, give them authority to act and don't meddle. Don't micromanage. Give them the work and let them do it. Look at the fruit of the counsel received finally in verses 24 through 27. It's real simple. So Moses listened. Here's the son-in-law. Here's the son-in-law who with Aaron had the staff of God in their hands. This is the son-in-law who had been an instrument of redemption for the people of Israel. Even though he had to return after 40 long years in Midian to do it. He takes this advice. It says, so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and he did all that he had said. And you see it repeated. He chose able men out of Israel, and that's the focus, the focus there, not to exclude men who fear God, men who are trustworthy, or men who hate a bribe, all right? The focus here is that they were able men, capable men, who could get things done, who could resolve disputes, who could settle matters between two 
persons in conflict. And it left Moses to focus on this priority, right? This priority of doing what he was to do, and that is representing the people before God, verse 19, and to bring their cases before God. And in this, of course, we receive a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ in this picture of Moses as judge, even an advocate in one person. Let me ask you a question in closing. And I, I do briefly for our children, I want to give you a really specific application. Have you ever thought that your mom and dad, when your mom and dad's instruction, their words to you are designed for your good, God has intended their words for your good, for your blessing. When mom and dad speak to you, do you ignore them? Do you fake listening? Do you roll your eyes? Okay. What does that look like? What does that look like when mom and dad speak to you and ask you to obey them, to come right? Hey, dinner's ready. Or let's open our Bible. We're going to read here, you know, from Exodus 18. Do you do that? Do, do, you, do you obey right away? Do you obey with a cheerful heart? And do you do obey fully in whatever mom and dad asks you to do, right? I know we've got some young, young uh, some youth in here that are very interested in, in going through our membership immersion and being baptized and making a profession of faith. What does that look like uh, with mom and dad? If we, if we were living in your house for 30 days, would that look like you really respecting mom and dad's words here. Here's Moses, not a son, a son-in-law. And it says, so Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and he did all that he had said. But I want to ask, I want us to close here and think for a moment. What, if the, what would the church like? What would our body be like? What would our influence be if we were hearing all that was good? If we refuse to hear an uncorroborated criticism of another person, if we refused to entertain, to countenance gossip or a derogatory word about another brother or sister, what about what would we look like as a church if we would only help others for good? That every one of us, that it would be known in our church where everyone is serving where everyone says, I can do this one thing and I can do it faithfully and I can do it well to the glory of God. What would the church like if we could speak the truth in love and speak what is good out of love for each other? If we didn't simply keep our mouth shut so we wouldn't say something stupid, but a new day would dawn where we'd be seeking others out and our objective is to build one another up through the word of God, through encouraging words, where we all imbibe something of the spirit of Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And what would the church look like if we could acknowledge and develop, we could mobilize and equip the church of Jesus for an army of good works? After all, I think when you look at Ephesians 4, 
the work of ministry, right? It's not just the pastors, but in fact, it's the work of the pastors, the elders, to be equipping broadly the saints, the people of God, for works of service. Would the world take notice if we began to relate that way to one another? To only hear what is good, to only help others for good, to speak what is good out of love for the other, and to acknowledge and flame and cultivate, to celebrate, equip, to push forward others and their gifts. Would the world take notice? I think so. And I think we'd begin to see men and women and children coming to faith in Christ, not just getting people coming from one church to another, but even we would begin to have a heart to see God saving our neighbors, our family members, the the unchurched, those at the margins. God help us see it in our day. Let's not only hear all the good, let's help others for good to the glory of his great name. Let's pray. Help us, Father, apply this word as we've heard all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus, all the rich blessings that are ours in Christ. Help us endeavor to do good to all men, especially to those in the house of faith. Let our church be marked by good works. Let us, our church be marked, our body, by not just godless, not godless chatter, vain speculation, gossip, but let us be known as a church that speaks the truth to one another in love, that builds on the relationship that we have, and we're prodding one another along our pilgrim path as we're aiming for the celestial city. Help us with that, we pray in Christ's name.